Right. Well, hello again, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Trial by Fire. We haven't done an interview in a while, um, and I think today is uh, should should uh, should make up for that. Um, our guest today is a man named Charlie Walker. Um, don't know if you guys have heard of him. Um, I've definitely mentioned him a few times on the show with regards to kind of bikepacking and cycling and things. Um, Charlie, thank you so much for coming on. Um, I've been following your work since I uh, kind of listened to both your books on Audible kind of at the beginning of this year. And I've really wanted to interview, uh, interview you for a while. Um, for people maybe who are not aware of who you are, could you give us a little bit of an overview of maybe how you would describe your work? Uh, sure. Well, firstly, thanks for having me on. Uh, pleasure to join you guys. Um, I suppose I'm best described as a, well, I prefer to describe myself as a travel writer or an adventure travel writer. Um, I've spent the last mm -hmm. 12 years or so heading off on a number of different, uh, journeys or adventures or expeditions, um, with sort of a variety of different levels of difficulty or challenge, um, and these have increasingly focused on accessing remote regions and people living in those regions to try and gain a, a better and hopefully slightly deeper insight into their lives. Um, but the way that I'm usually described is adventurer or explorer. Um, so take your pick. That's uh, do you do you feel comfortable with either of those, or is it more? Um, does the adventure or explorer, what is it called? The um, brand or badge label. Does it take away from your yeah. journalistic work? Do you feel like, or is it more focused on you rather than the story? If you go by the name of adventure or explorer rather than a journalist, um, it's a really interesting question and i don't i suppose have a finite answer to that and i guess if you got me on different days you might get a slightly different answer from me each time i'm not at all fussed by the phrase adventurer um there are lots of people i suppose trading under that uh under that moniker and they're all doing lots of different things and there's a huge range and i definitely fall somewhere within the scope of that um, Explorer is a bit more complicated. Um, I used to sort of bridle at that label a little bit because I felt that the term exploration, or rather the term explorer, referred to either you know people of a bygone era, the Scots, the Shackletons, the um, you know, there's numerous people, Freya Stark, people who have gone off to places that are kind of essentially new to the place that they came from or the people that they grew up around or live amongst. And uh, I sort of always, well, for a long time, I felt that it could only reasonably be applied today to people who are pushing the fields, you know, various fields within science um, or astronomy. Uh, people who are going off planet or to deep sea or discovering new species and doing various things along those lines. However, so many people seem to use it now that I guess with time, the meaning of words and language does change. So it's not something I tend particularly to apply to myself. Uh, I'm sure I have done at a couple of points in the past, but I'm fine with it now. I'm comfortable with that term. Yeah, for sure. And I think it's it's something that kind of leads in very comfortably to something that I did want to ask you about was, I guess, sort of the 
how would you say this sort of egalitarian sort of nature of travel nowadays um and and very much the way in which that we share it which is exclusively almost online um and you kind of mentioned some early, some old old you know older generational travelers there where it's kind of like uh, a certain point they would just drop off the face of the earth and then kind of return maybe three or four or five years later either with a book or with uh, a slideshow or you know something and um you know what is the role of someone like that in today's society where almost i guess like spotify has done for music it's both given us a really wide gamut of exposure to like what's out there but then it's also maybe slightly diluted the sort of energy or sort of the magic of of what it is that can be achieved by a traveler and i would love to know what your kind of thoughts are on what is the role of someone like that in today's sort of yeah egalitarian but then also maybe slightly homogenized sort of uh, way in which that we share our travels online yeah well i mean i completely agree with your last point about a arguably a dilution of um of kind of output i suppose i mean mm. i i see myself primarily as a writer i think writing is the thing that mm -hmm. i personally enjoy doing most and probably uh excel at more than other areas i'm a i'm an average photographer i'm uh, average filmmaker or well, I'm not a filmmaker by any standards um, but writing I, I love doing and when I go on expeditions I do tend to not post really sometimes that's for you know logistical reasons my latest journey uh, for two or three months I didn't post once um, I kind of posted here I am off <laughs> into the wilds and then three months later I posted saying I'm back here's what happened and that was in this case um, for two reasons. One, it was I was very, very, very seldom getting any internet access. I think two or three times during that three month period, I got spotty access in small remote villages. Mm -hmm. um, and secondly, it became well. There are three reasons really. Secondly, it became uh, a bit precarious due to political situation, etc. That's something we could talk about later, perhaps. But yeah, for sure. Thirdly, is is I I. I like the dislocation. I it's a big part of why I like the grueling wilderness stints of what I do. Um, I first sort of you know cast out into the world when I was in my early twenties, and I spent four years cycling around Asia and Africa. And during that time, I was basically incommunicado. I didn't have a phone. I didn't have any social media. I had a Facebook account as a sort of hangover from being a student, but I just once... Well, it was before smartphones, I assume. Yeah, it was. It was. I, I think the first iPhone came out in 2008. I started in 2010, but it was before smartphones, right. sort of the advent of their total domination mm. of our lives. And I would write a blog every one or two months, and that would be long form, like a chapter in a book. And I would post that with a few pictures in it, you know, very much the old sort of WordPress standard, the sort of thing that no one would ever, ever, ever read today. That's not read. <laughs> People just, yeah, you can, you can, you can. I mean, even I find I can post, I can post an average picture on Instagram, for example, and that tends to be my social media output is posting pictures from previous journeys with hopefully some sort of story behind it and telling that story, the story of a place or a person or whatever it might be. And I can post a, an average picture with a really interesting, nicely sort of, you know, written uh, 
you know, a little blurb, a few paragraphs about whatever it might be, or I can post a selfie with, uh, which I, you know, I, I try not to do, but I could just post a selfie with like a thumbs up emoji and I know which one gets more interaction right. and it's very depressing. It's very weird, isn't it? Because yeah. it sort of makes yeah. you think, what is the point? But then I suppose that is, that is that format. And, totally. uh, you know, I, I like to hone my sort of audience, if you will, through, through writing and secondarily through speaking, through public speaking. And if you go and stand in front of an audience and show them 70 pictures of your face with various <laughs> different blur, out of focus backgrounds, they're not going to enjoy it. Or at least, you know, only only the most basic of audiences will. Whereas if you and if you write a book that is just constantly banging on about yourself, it's boring to read. You know, there are enough uh, kind of um, Jordan autobiographies out there written by other people you know for, for that that's not what people come to me for i hope um i've spoken long enough now that i've sort of not only veered away from but forgotten your question so if you steer me back on i'll probably be able to answer I th- it <laughs> i think i think that was a uh, great answer that raised uh, a lot of uh, thoughts and, and questions in my head and one of them uh, is that it's very nice to sort of here that you tailor the uh, the uh, what is it called the content for the audience rather than trying to have the wordpress sort of format of text on instagram while you still want to do a good story because arguably your instagram is is fantastic when it comes to the photography but what makes the photography better is the written text to that it, it ties it in in a very, very nice way. Well, you're one of the 10 or 15% who will actually read that. But the way engagement or interaction seems to work nowadays, people will look at stories and they actually won't really scroll vertically. I think it is through no, posts no. anymore. Unless there is a, you know, you, if you put a post, you can then post that in your stories as well, essentially as a kind of a photographic yeah. link. But then people don't click through to the link because they've seen the picture and that's what, you know, inst- I mean, it's, called instagram it's yeah uh yeah. i think it's, it's a photo based you know format and twitter is deliberately short and increasingly <laughs> concerning um so uh <laughs> yeah there's there's perhaps not out there a great short form format for what i do beyond article writing but that's a slightly different thing and there are barriers to entry there or barriers to access rather what you're talking about there like those barriers i always kind of think of them as like as like friction points of friction for someone to be able to either get access to your to sort of either whether it's short form or long form content and uh sometimes i feel like i think you're absolutely right in terms of like standing in front of people talking or you know writing a a long form article or a book um in some ways there's there's like a lot less friction there for people because we're used to reading from a young age we're used to talking and listening and engaging with people on a face-to-face basis but the but the when the the access point is a screen and our attention is being pulled in 65 different ways while we're trying to you know what because you're not really how often are we you know picking up our phones to go i'm going to go look for a piece of long-form content to digest um and unfortunately that 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 brings us on to what you guys do i mean that's what podcasts are so great for and i suppose it is the it's it is quite long form but it's podcasts are generally free to download 
they mm-hmm. are a an in-depth discussion should they you know should you choose them to be yeah and they are things that not everyone but a lot of people listen to while um running or working out or commuting or times when they are able to kind of draw in their focus and slightly shut off the outside world um so that that's that's why uh, you know more power to you guys <laughs> yeah well yeah i appreciate that but i mean it's like that that sort of thing where like i remember being a kid and like just to kind of come slightly back to what we were talking about earlier but i remember as a kid watching um michael palin's world travel documentaries with my dad um i believe it was probably on bbc or something like that and i remember my dad saying like imagine that that was your life and somebody was actually paying you to go and explore the world and to see things and to like document those things. And, you know, again, like that thing, I just love the, the sort of the magic of that sort of thing where you, you sort of drop off the face of the earth and you might get a, a postcard or a letter from you from time to time. Or like you were saying, uh, when you were on your, on your bicycle, like maybe, a a blog post every couple of months or a phone call with your with your family which i'm sure was also difficult to sort of arrange and is it a good thing though at the same time that we can we can now communicate and the world seems smaller or does it you know i still don't feel like do, does it kill the magic of travel it's both i suppose it, it depends what you're after i mean mm. i think it makes travel to use that sort of broad term i think it makes it uh less intimidating to people um Mm -hmm. it makes it uh more attractive probably and it massively Mm -hmm. facilitates um i suppose if you're if you deal with it in the right way you can you can enhance or better utilize your you know your your experience and your time um in the way that i mean long gone are the days where you turn up at some sort of hostel and get a bed because everyone's pre-booked right. it before they've left their homes <laughs> right, exactly. in various Western <laughs> European and North American countries. Um, mm. But uh, but at the same time, there is, a, there is a price point and that is immersion. I think when you have, as you said, that instant access to home, to somewhere or anywhere else, you, there's, there's much less, it's much less immersive. Um, I, in the same way that traveling by oneself or traveling as part of a group or a pair is different, you know, by yourself and, and, and both are valid and both have advantages and disadvantages. Um, but traveling by yourself, you are forced to immerse. And even if you're by yourself, but have a phone and pick up a SIM card on arrival in a country and are able to FaceTime, um, not that I think anyone uses that anymore, but able to talk to someone's video face, you know, at any given moment throughout the day. And not just your friends and family at home and your mum, but also your friends who live in other countries on the other side of the world. And, give, you know, particularly people who do have a spread of friends around the world, it means it doesn't matter what time zone you're in, there's always going to be someone awake who you can badger. Um, and and that, that perhaps is a, a slight shame because I do think one of the great advantages or, or you know reasons to travel is to force yourself into another world and somewhat cut the strings for a time yeah that's really nice and and i wonder is there a way does that sort of alleviate or does that add to the sort of the loneliness of being on the road because i think 
if I remember from reading your books, um, one of the things that you seem to really struggle with was, I mean, it was a really nice quote in there at one point, I remember it's like knowing the difference between loneliness and being alone and also relying on the sort of the kindness of the people that you met along the way and the sort of the journey. But like, does the ability yeah, well, to... Yeah, I mean, I think, so yeah, definitely, particularly back with the, the journey and the books that you've read, um, well done getting through 15 or 16 hours of my, my, my monotone voice, by the way. Oh, but, I um, enjoyed it, man. Really the, enjoyed it. Uh, during that journey, I struggled, particularly in the first year or two, I struggled a lot with loneliness. Um, mm-hmm. And I think it's because I was young and hadn't yet spent long periods of time by myself. And I, mm-hmm. yeah, I found it hard. Nowadays, I love being alone and they're getting that sort of that space that um that piece um but also uh well i mean as, as i think you were sort of hinting out there loneliness i believe personally and solitude are just two sides of the same coin and solitude we tend to think of as generally potentially a good thing not always um I suppose we talk about solitary confinement as a bad thing, but solitude, I think, can be a beautiful, enhancing experience, whereas loneliness isn't. Uh, it, it can be a formative experience, but it's never a beautiful experience. It's, it's a painful experience it, that is implied in the, it's a negative word. Um, but being alone and feeling the peace of solitude, I mean, it's always possible to feel that. It's a sort of a state state of mind type thing i suppose and that's something that i don't know any shortcuts towards but uh knowing that the situation you're in could be deemed also good <laughs> uh probably helps you know it comes with age and experience i guess but it probably helps tip the balance towards appreciating and in fact enjoying time by yourself as opposed to just feeling you know painfully you know cripplingly alone Right. No, I mean, I, I kind of understand what you mean on a very, very microscopic scale of kind of what you have, this, what, what you've experienced through your travels. I spent a year living and working at a canoe center in, in the south of Sweden, which in the summertime was complete, super busy every day, people coming and going. But once the season closed down and the, the, the guy who owned the canoe center, he didn't live uh, he, he didn't live there. I did. Um, so at the end of the day, when the canoe center shut down, um, I kind of ended up spending a lot of time by myself, like in my cabin or going out paddling on the lake or or camping alone. And and nowadays I actually quite enjoy that, like going out and camping by myself overnight. And to a lot of people, my mom included, like thinks, Jesus, are you not, you look real lonely out there in your photos or your videos by yourself. And it's like, no, I, I love it. Really nice to spend some time by yourself sometimes, you know? So I, I understand your sentiment. Yeah, I completely agree what you sacrifice in peace and comfort you make up for in sort of, uh, yeah, just unwinding, I guess. Yeah, um, for sure. There, yeah, there are, uh, there's, there's, sorry. Um, what, I, what came to mind when you were speaking there is there's a book by a French author called Sylvain Tesson, which, uh, called Constellations of the Forest, very short book, uh, about him just, uh, shutting himself up inside a cabin on the shore of Lake Baikal mm-hmm. through a six month winter, it's a beautiful book, really, really worth reading. Um, yeah. So I, I recommend. Yeah, I got that one from a couple of good, guests good. once. Um, well, yeah, that's a, a good one for anyone who's interested in the experience of solitude versus loneliness. It is a it, it's a fantastic book. That's I'm I'm happy you brought it up. But um, 
I love these philosophical sort of discussions in and around being the outdoors or just being a human. But I feel like we, you said that you were in your 20s and then you went out on a four-year cycling journey. And that in itself is extremely impressive. But being in your 20s and going in your early 20s and going out onto this journey, what that sort of, of course, propelled you into wherever you're standing today but what and who was charlie walker before that and what led you to actually sort of jump into the deep end of the pool and and just start cycling um good question i suppose the without going too long form the answer is throughout uh childhood i was I was always sort of outgoing and relatively outdoorsy, but I didn't grow up in an area where there was sort of traditionally outdoorsy things to do besides perhaps go and sleep in the woods in a tent, which is not something I did, but I spent a lot of time outdoors and, you know, in that sort of slightly cliche um, sort of just William type thing, I was always out climbing trees and running around and playing sports and whatever. Um, But I wasn't really, aware of or interested in the concept of um, adventurous travel or exploration. I never did any mountain biking or skiing or you know, climbing or anything like that, or, or even hiking. Um, but then after I left school, I took a, a year out before starting um, a degree. And I spent some of that year um, backpacking around uh east and southern africa right and during that time i slowly just slightly fell for the i suppose vaguely speaking the concept of wandering just being on a journey going from a to b and sometimes even listlessly wandering with no real goal in sight just hopping on a bus and seeing where it takes you out into the bush in the sort of the you know the back roads of tanzania or something like that and the minute I um, was able to, uh, sort of throughout my studies, every time I had a chance, I would, um, I would book a cheap flight to somewhere. I mean, sometimes somewhere I'd never even heard of. I remember yeah, trying yeah. to. I remember thinking West Africa seemed interesting, and so I booked a flight to a city called Bamako that I'd never heard of. Turns out it's the capital of Mali. I think it probably is quite well known, and actually increasingly a difficult place. Well, for the last. Uh, 12 years or so, a difficult place to visit uh, due to uh, sort of um, insurgency. But um, I, I went out there and for the first time started getting quite remote, started going to places that were not just off the beaten track, but also perhaps a little bit less sensible to visit. And as these, you know, once a summer, I'd go off somewhere. And finally, I decided to travel to China and fly into Beijing, fly out of the Mongolian capital, Ulaanbaatar, and cycle between the two. And I don't really know why I chose to do that. It's not particularly far. It's about a thousand miles, which I know is a long way, but it's flat. It's across sort of some of the Gobi Desert. Uh, It was about a two-week cycle. And actually, frankly, I didn't love (laughs) I didn't love the cycling. Um, (laughs) I wasn't in physically great shape at the time, not necessarily unfit, but I 
um, snapped, not ripped, but actually snapped one of my quadricep muscles about 10 days before departure. So mm-hmm. I, my, my dad dropped me off at the airport, at which point I surrendered my crutch to him. I was down to one crutch by that point and sort of hobbled through um, and sort of, you know, having just checked a box with a bicycle in, um, you know, it was slightly farcical. And then on arrival in Beijing, I broke my wrist on the first evening after having had too many drinks and falling over probably because I had a, you know, a broken uh, quadricep. Um, And so, you know, for two weeks, I kind of stayed with a friend in Beijing and gradually got myself to a point where I was able to cut the cast off my wrist and my leg seemed to be working. And I set off and cycled. And for two weeks, I cycled basically into headwinds, largely on desert tracks, Um, not having a great time. But there were moments, um, you know, I stopped at some village in the middle of the desert on the side of a seldom used railway and just got chatting to people who I never would have met had I been on the trains that once every couple of days go past that railway, uh, go down that railway track, or if I'd been on a bus or if I'd flown from Beijing to Ulaanbaatar. Um, So there were those encounters that I quickly saw that this is, these are great. And this bicycle is a very, very cheap effective way to facilitate these encounters and also doesn't immediately alienate me from the people I'm likely to meet. If anything, it draws them towards me because they're fascinated by someone choosing to travel in a, uh, you know, unnecessarily physically arduous fashion. That and... Some guy coming out of the, over the horizon on a bike, like, what? Exactly, uh, with my little klaxon going, <laughs> <laughs> um, but... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, that, 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 those always amuse the kids. Um, but that and the fact that uh, you can cycle into a harsh headwind in the desert all day with sand grit flying into your eyes. And then the end of the day, the sun sets or starts to set, the wind dies down a little bit. You put up a tent, you cook some food, even if it's just the most basic food. But you sit there out in the middle of nowhere. You have the landscape to yourself you have some food you're about to lie down and sleep the sleep of the dead for nine or ten hours uh, and those moments are totally sublime so you put together those two factors by the time i got to the end of that fairly unpleasant two-week bicycle ride i subsequently got quite drunk in a siberian forest with some friends sitting around a fire and by the time i wake up in the morning i decided to do this big long (laughs) four-year Uh, journey which i started uh, about a year later i mean it's 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 fantastic that it doesn't it doesn't have to be more complicated than that sometimes Uh, arguably you can say that this is an extremely complicated way to come to the conclusion of an answer to start a trip (laughs) but at the same time it is such a non-complicated way of of uh sort of steering your life in 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 uh in any direction sort of working more with gut feeling and emotions and and whatnot rather than sort of numbers if that makes sense yeah completely i think um but i also think that there are many different ways to travel there are many different reasons to travel and there are many different ways to get into travel and that's what did it for me and i also think that the things that i do the sort of scale of them is absolutely not for everyone i always um slightly uh i feel slightly um concerned when i hear sort of other adventurers get in front of an audience and say hey everyone can do this everyone should do this get out there and do it because you know i've nearly died on you know perhaps more than a dozen occasions and um if if that's not 
terrible for me. It's definitely not good for mum. So, you know, know, I'm I'm not, um, uh, you know, I try to avoid being blasé about the scale of these things. That's that's very that's that's very nice to hear because it's often it often or often I'm using that word very um, broadly now. It is that what you it is like just like you say that people come up on stage and they have a talk or make a video where everyone can do this, which is a lot of people can do a lot of different things, but there are a lot of things that is hard to prepare for. I can imagine when it comes to like near death experiences and how to deal with that. So sure, physically, may people might be able to do long trips, but there's so many things that are unforeseen that maybe not everyone is in the right mindset to be able to do. Exactly. I mean, even if someone can do something, it's not necessarily a good idea for them to do it. I could I could get into the world of adult entertainment, but I don't think that will suit, suit me or serve me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but the point, the point is still there. You just had to mention it and the point is still there. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, where did the... Um... The journalism and writing come in into all of this sort of pre pre these big trips was that something that you had already um gone down the road of or was the trip something trips something that inspired you to pursue travel writing or just writing in on journalism in general um i always liked writing and i think i always had a you know a bit of a knack for it um, I, I liked playing with language from quite a young age. I think I'm someone who, uh, <laughs> obsequiously uses words like obsequious. Um, <laughs> but, uh, I, I studied English literature and then did a postgraduate diploma in journalism. And at that point I was sort of thinking I would like to go into, uh, news journalism or foreign uh, correspondency potentially, um, you know, crisis correspondency. Mm-hmm. And that was sort of my plan while I was studying journalism. But when I finished that, uh, diploma, I picked up a, well, by the time I finished that diploma, I had decided to do this long journey and I picked up a, I was very lucky to pick up a, um, a role on the, um, on the travel desk of the daily express newspaper, arguably not the highest quality rag available. <laughs> um, but uh, I, I was there for, for a while and then set off on my bicycle journey. And by the time I came back, I think I, I mean, I've been, I've been away for a long time and I've become quite enamored with that way of life, with traveling and, and writing and just sort of getting to know places and people. It's more recently that I've started to, I suppose, um, shift a little bit back towards what I suppose could be described as journalism, um, although that's open to debate. But, um, you know, I mean, I I, I do write occasional articles for the newspapers, but um, with just one or two exceptions, those have always been in the travel section. But I suppose travel journalism is a form of journalism. But, um, yeah, the writing's always been there. And uh, I think and hope that will be the thing that I sort of, you know, leave behind i guess once once dead (laughs) (laughs) well you're not dead yet man um but it reminded (laughs) me when you were saying there about how you uh, embarked on your journey after waking up uh kind of hung over and i i think that's exactly how 
uh, Ed Stafford decided to walk the length of the Amazon River. He was like drunk with his friend one night and they kind of made this decision. <laughs> I think that's, it's like, but there's one of the things that I really like about your writing is like the sort of that real, especially like your first two books again, like they're the, the main sort of my main source of contact with your work. Um, being such at such a young age when you were traveling, you don't really shy away from like the things that a 22 year old would be doing, getting drunk, you know, chatting to girls all that stuff and i and i really like the it's quite a refreshing sort of element of the work i believe um and and also I like would, the sort i would caveat that with trying to chat to girls it's, oh, right okay um, <laughs> it's hard to do when you haven't showered in two months and you live in a tent on a bicycle sure sure but um that's an icebreaker at least it's an icebreaker and a mood killer yeah um but but one of the things that like sort of struck me particularly about maybe the second book as well was is like the way in which that you've explored so and i suppose this is slightly changing up the gear because we could come back to journalism which i would really like to kind of come back around to because again i find that sort of element of this conversation really interesting but um the the way in which that you sort of explore different modes of transport um because for me that that is uh, personally something i find really interesting both from sort of a, a a practical sense of things but also from sort of like as humans don't we've tried in so many different ways to see what's over the next horizon what's around the next corner i think it's it's sort of been built into us as humans and we sort of e- like found ever more sort of invent inventive and quicker ways to to pass through space um and one of the things that i like about the sort of modes of transport that you've chosen like let's say a canoe or a dugout canoe or maybe a horse or on your own two feet or on the course on the bike and stuff is like feels like these are modes of transport that almost force you to not only slow down but sort of utilize the way in which the, the local people would would also travel across those sort of spaces was that intentional or was that just something that sort of came out of curiosity for who oh, i'd like to try that i think it probably arose out of um the will in a younger me to stretch myself to challenge myself um Mm. and i I think i used to be quite particularly interested in seeing what i was physically capable of um Mm -hmm. and slowly that has morphed into as i said earlier perhaps the realization that well, if you turn up somewhere on a bicycle or on foot or in a canoe, um, there's no barrier between people you might meet. If anything, that's a, a talking mm. point. Whereas if you turn up, I mean, most of my travel tends to be in not always necessarily the developing world, but perhaps not always in affluent Northern European regions. And um, right. if you turn up in a, say an African village or well, a village, a small village where people are relatively deprived. If you turn up in a four by four or you get helicoptered in, then immediately there's a sort of a status barrier almost. Um, and they might, they mm. might be very excited and find that very impressive, but you're probably going to struggle to mm-hmm. get a sense of who people really are and, and see people's kind of normal relaxed selves. Um, and so I, um i've always liked the the access that struggling to get somewhere can subsequently provide that and the fact that mm. i just really like 
peace <laughs> i really like the quiet of being right. out in the middle of nowhere <laughs> and if you're sitting on a on a noisy hog or uh, or in a car or whatever it might be then you you don't get that um so mm. yeah oh, that's it's, very it's nice. for, for those reasons what's been your most enjoyable mode of transport or fulfilling maybe is a better term um i really like walking you know getting Getting from A to B at the sort of ancestral pace of human migration, that kind of, it doesn't matter who you are, mm. basically everyone walks at about three miles an hour. That's really nice. Uh, it is brutalizing. Walking, <laughs> you know, a marathon a day, for instance, is absolutely exhausting. Um, and so that's something that's quite beautiful about bicycles is it is a, um, it is a convenient halfway house between the, Mm. slow you know pace of walking and the far too quick pace of downhill yeah yeah exactly <laughs> um of, of of a vehicle um but i sure i think walking's great skiing's brilliant because it can ski you know touring essentially walking with heavy shoes heavy long shoes mm-hmm. not um mm-hmm. sort of downhill skiing um because it facilitates getting you to um to places that you can't walk to crossing a mountain range or traversing, you know, down the length of a mountain range is, is fantastic because you will get to places that are totally pristine where there is no one, or if there is, or ever has been, then any trace of them is entirely buried in snow. And that's fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um, there's also something I'm basically just listing all the things now. <laughs> no, there's also no, something great, great about, about rivers. Yeah, no, you know, no, the, but it's nice to hear that there's beauty in, um, all of the different things yeah but also all of the different things so it's skiing or, or biking or whatever it might be um but i want to take it back to a little bit um philosophical again mm-hmm. and uh from um from a, a national geographic article that came out earlier this year uh that was a really nice read the uh, question they asked there and through this conversation you've sort of asked the question or you, you answered this question through other questions that we've answered but i would like to hear if you, if this is something that you've given a little bit more thought of in any way shape or form but what is the role of explorers or adventures in the 21st century and my add to that is is it more self-fulfilling than it is I'm doing air quotes now, uh, big, severe air quotes, rather than it being a uh, something valuable for society, if that makes sense. Because looking at explorers, historical explorers, it was to the North Pole, to the South Pole, like these big um, expeditions for scientific reasons. Yes. This goes, of course, into what we talked about before, definitions and whatnot, but... Yeah, what's the role of explorers or adventures in the 21st century? It's a, it's a really interesting question and sort of subsequent conversation. Uh, I suppose I would say there is no one role. Um, and firstly, to do something because you want to do it is perfectly valid, provided you're not harming 100%. anyone or anything else. Um, yeah. I, uh, I suppose one of the reasons why I don't particularly feel comfortable with the term explorer applied to myself is that... I think fundamentally what my role is is uh to to entertain to tell stories you know i my my career my uh, livelihood depends on an output of spoken word and written word i 
speak to and write for audiences. And they hopefully come away from what they've read or heard, having enjoyed it, enjoyed it, found it interesting, and hopefully maybe, you know, learned a thing or two along the way or, you know, had their eyes open to a new part of the world or culture or people or whatever it might be. Um, it's interesting you mentioned the North and South Pole and the kind of, uh, I mean, even back there, so from you know, my journeys, if I want to seek funding, I, it's this funny balancing act nowadays of, um, and different people do this in different ways. But for me, it's often because I will apply for a, you know, a grant from venerable institutions. I have to prove that what I'm doing is going to provide something of value. And uh, at the same time, they want there to be something that's kind of attention grabbing because that helps them with their own publicity purposes. Um, whereas if you go back uh, a long time, a long time, go back a hundred years to the, you know, the sort of the great age of Edwardian polar exploration, they wanted to get to these places partially to provide that value, but that value often wasn't what would get them funding at all. So they wouldn't play that up at all. They would play up themes of, uh, you know, <laughs> flag planting or nationalism mm -hmm. or whatever. Getting, Getting to the first. North Pole is ultimately a pointless endeavor. Getting to the South Pole yeah. is is ultimately a pointless endeavor. But if you are collecting samples of use or observations of use along the way, then you are providing something. And some people do that. Some people don't do that. Some people do that because they need to. Some people do that because they want to. Some people don't do that because they don't need to, et cetera. The, the fourth option <laughs> within that little um, table there. And um, all of the above are absolutely fine. It's whatever works for you. And again, I suppose I stress provided that you're not, you know, harming anyone or damaging anything along the way. And mm -hmm. well, I suppose with polar or particularly perhaps with antarctic exploration there, there is a conversation to be had there because there are <laughs> there are huge amounts of emissions to be had and getting to a place that is the most under threat from emissions um but that's a whole different conversation and i don't really even know where my opinions stand on that it's very interesting the story that a lot of people come away from for example antarctica with is a story of advocacy for uh, action against yeah. climate change and carbon yeah. emissions. And uh, for some people, perhaps that is because of it's, it's genuinely felt. For some people, it's perhaps because it's the most sort of relevant or zeitgeisty topic. And for some people, that might be because they do feel some sort of guilt at having flown an incredibly long way, in some cases with chartered aircrafts, to undertake something that is ultimately for personal vanity, whether yeah. whether we like to, whether I like to admit it or not, a lot there is vanity in just about every journey I undertake. I do it because I want to do it, and I want to have done it later. Um, I hope that that's not my sole driving factor. I don't believe it is, but in these things where we sort of pit ourselves against nature or the elements, um, of course, there's there's ego and vanity in that, and I think it would be for pretty much everyone disingenuous to deny that. Right. Lots of lots of controversial topic points there. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I mean, I, I I really I really really enjoyed that uh, answer because it leads, just like you said, it's it's a lot of controversial sort of topics in there. But at the same time, like we 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 tend to shoot ourselves in the foot quite a lot. Like I work within in the tourism industry. Uh, me and my wife, we have uh, sled dogs. We take out guests on um, here in northern Sweden. Mm. 
And I've noticed that one of the best ways to get people, whether they act on it or not, that's that's not my sort of job, but talking about and whether what if they flew flown to to us to do a tour or whatnot, that's not necessarily the point. But if people can't see, feel, or hear from people living in areas where the climate change is is seen more and more every year, it's really hard to have any emotional um, attachment to that and it's really hard to care more than just for like it looks good on your bank account or it doesn't look good on your bank account but it looks good for your friends for you because you're donating money to whatever but actually going to a place and getting a emotional or getting a connection to the place is very valuable yeah I, from I, a cons- con- conservation perspective i completely agree it's but but sort of in keeping with that it's unfortunate that the Places where the most people will be most affected by climate changes tend to yeah. be places where people don't go. For example, the you know exactly. the coastline of Bangladesh or uh, Tuvalu or you know various soon to be X islands. Um, and if 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 going to uh, northern Sweden, for example, can can give that sense and that sort of understanding that uh, tangibility to to climate change, that's definitely a good thing. But still, I think it's only ever going to give um, you know a, a portion, a slice of the, oh, the, the 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 bigger picture, which definitely, which I guess is um, you know that that bigger picture perhaps can be certainly more easily, but perhaps better accessed by the increasingly shocking sort of footage that we just see on the on the news um, and and getting mm-hmm. uh, well, as you say, as as with where you live, getting personal stories, but carving out time or trying to persuade people convince people to take the time to to um digest those stories to imbibe those stories that is a real challenge because everyone's short of time and the spare time that we have we don't (laughs) we don't really want to listen to things that make us feel bad which is completely understandable um and your your listeners listening to this will probably (laughs) probably resent us bringing the tone down because there's lots of sort of fun adventurous things to talk about but um about i mean i guess you guys maybe have the more discerning listenership um it's yeah it's really tricky (laughs) but it's 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 all it's all part of it being out in in uh in um and this is something that i mentioned multiple times and and i'm surprised that i haven't gotten more more uh what is it called uh feedback uh on it in in terms of of angry angry letters with um i I fully i fully understand i fully fully understand the concept of leave no trace but it's really hard to for me to grasp the idea of leave no trace when the option is to take a titanium stove and a gas canister out where the displaced environmental destruction to make those things happen Mm. somewhere else than in your backyard Mm. but then justifying it by i'm not making a small fire in this little wooden yeah we just displace and outsource so it, it is this sort of fully uh all of these things my point is like all of these things that we've talked about makes perfect sense for an outdoors person to consider uh when it comes to thinking about your actual uh environmental footprint if you will on the activities that you're doing absolutely and i think um 
one of the great challenges is in the first place, knowing and understanding, but in the second place, trying to help others to do so. And I, I'm certainly no, um, no Svengali at this, but trying to understand what footprint different things and different activities have. For example, cooking some food over a little fire, you know, wood fire in the woods in, in Northern Sweden is probably, I don't know for sure, but probably going to have a smaller carbon footprint than cooking something with, um, you know, uh, renewably produced electricity, but that thing has come packaged in plastic. Um, yeah, it's, or maybe it's not, I don't know, but there's, there's no, someone needs to make a sort of, um, authoritative website where you can sort of enter a yeah, and enter yeah. B and get the grams of carbon yeah, output sir, or yeah. whatever. I mean, even with trying to transfer to, exactly. uh, renewables, um, the, you know, Britain is quite well placed for wind power, but, um, to, to build all the wind turbines involves, um, miles of copper wiring and that is tons of copper wiring as well as tons of lithium for the batteries and the storage and that's all going to come from Chile and they'll do very well out of it but the extractive process there is is hugely deleterious to the environment that it's in and so those trade-offs is is well there's no easy answer obviously and people much better versed in this than 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 me or us have been trying to sort this out in Egypt recently probably to little effect Right, exactly, and and you know, I don't think it's I don't think it's uh, I think it's almost like we've been in some way sort of indoctrinated or brainwashed to feel guilty about these things. But like Jeremia said, with that sort of leave no trace, if you're or sort of lack thereof, if you're sort of being conscious about these things, and you're someone who goes to the woods and lights a campfire, which would, as far as I understand, is like basically carbon neutral anyway, because the oxygen it would have produced in the time it was alive is directly sort of. Uh, offset by the the you know the they what it's produced when it's burned like so wood in and of itself is is quite an interesting sort of mode of or method of, of sort of fuel um, um but i i do want to kind of bring it slightly back to yourself charlie and again this is i suppose kind of offset from what we were saying earlier where the it's not really about eu but it's about the story that you're trying to tell and Obviously, if people aren't aware like of the sort of the situation that you were in uh, early this year following the invasion of Ukraine from Russia, and at the time you were actually in Siberia, and um, I'm not going to make you go through that story again because I'm sure you're sick to death of talking about it. And actually, if anybody wants to hear that uh, conversation, you should go and listen to the episode that Charlie has done with uh, Joe Rogan. Really, really interesting. Super Sound, sounded absolutely heartbreaking like a really horrible sort of thing that you had to go through but my question is like as a sort of a journalist and sort of a someone who is documenting this journey even though it is your own personal journey how much of that sort of integrity did you try and retain because you were man- you managed to keep uh, your memory cards and your journal sort of hidden from the authorities while you were sort of in Russia at what point did your sort of your self-preservation almost get overridden by your ability or your sort of desire to want to capture or share the story that you kind of went through? Uh, I suppose the short answer is throughout. <laughs> um, right, right. I, sorry, sorry to change gears so much there, by the way. I just, no, no, that's, that's was fine. something that I really wanted to ask you about. Um, well, I, I think while I was, I mean, to, 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 to praise straightforwardly, I was in Russia for three days before uh, Ukraine was invaded. 
by Putin. Mm-hmm. Um, and for the subsequent two months, I hiked uh, about 600 miles along the surface of frozen rivers, combining two of my favorite modes of transport, walking and rivers, but just uh, walking right. on the river for the first time as opposed to paddling. Um, and right, right. Uh, eventually arrived uh, just walking through tiny, very remote villages, settlements of, of indigenous Siberian peoples. Um, and then I arrived at my end point, uh, this port town up on the North coast where I was arrested and then spent, uh, four weeks in a cell without really knowing when I'd be released if at all. Um, mm-hmm. but during the time that I was on this journey, I, I suppose I went from a point of thinking I'll be fine. This is a very interesting if heartbreaking time to be in this country, I'll get to mm. witness people, uh, normal people far from the, I mean, besides just witnessing and getting to know people from this very interesting sort of little known part of Russia who have very different lives to the average Russian. Mm-hmm. Uh, besides that, which was the original impetus for the journey, um, I'm also going to get to see normal Russian people far from the front lines and I guess, gauge as the weeks go by their thoughts about and reaction to the special operation, the Spetsalnaya Operatia. Um, and right. as the weeks did go by, I, I suppose I went from thinking I'll be absolutely fine to thinking there's a good chance I'll get deported, I'll get kicked out. Um, even after I was first in trouble with the police uh, who accused me of sort of conducting journalism and uh, asking provocative questions about Ukraine, which I'd been very careful to avoid, actually. I I sort of assiduously didn't ask people about Ukraine, yet they would always ask me about it, and then there it is, it's in conversation. Um, But even with that first encounter with the police, I wasn't especially worried. I'd been, been, (laughs) perhaps, uh, basically, I've been through the Russian court system about three times before. But that's a different story, or those are different stories. <laughs> oh, man. Um, one time, arguably very much my fault. The right. other two times, not so much. Um, but, uh, you know, I knew that for sort of minor, you know, termed administrative offences, you, you get a fine, and the fines are negligible, £20, £50 at most. You get a fine. I, I know that's still a bunch of money, but for, for, for a fine from the, you know, from the Russian authorities, it doesn't seem too... Too punitive to get the hell out of there. They are known to put people in a labor camp for 30 years, then shoot them in the head. Jesus. Um, It's all about perspectives. (laughs) It's all about relativity. (laughs) Yeah. I just like the little Einstein chipping in there, Jeremiah. (laughs) But um, that's my nugget of wisdom today. Um, well, I really like the way you guys have slightly different focuses of what to talk about. It, it makes a really nice balance and flow to this podcast. But um, I, I wasn't, even when I thought I'm going to be deported, I still wasn't massively concerned until the very end when the sort of the, the movement of events just started to seem quite concerning. And, and I guess I was quite, I was out in the back of beyond. So I had very little access to to information really you know i i i I got online about i think i said earlier two or three times during that three-month period and um you know media was quite heavily censored out there so i had some idea of what was going on but i also i I was getting more information false information from uh tvs in in you know people's homes and the villages we were going through i was going through rather um which i you know i'd only encounter once a week or so um and so as as the sort of 
tension mounted as the revelations at Busha were uncovered after the um, Russian retreat from the areas around Kiev, I started to feel like, ha, ah, things are getting a little bit out of my control now. Um, but even so, when I was locked up, it still came as a surprise to me. And after I was locked up, I thought, right, well, they'll, they sort of told me they would, they'll just release me in a, in a day or two and then I'll go back, you know, I'll leave Russia. And so it just, it sort of continued to come as a sort of unfolding Kafkaesque right. surprise. It was a sort of being nightmare spiraling descent. Exactly. Yeah. So, um, I guess there are, there are levels to how shit things can get in Russia these days and always, <laughs> and I've been through a fair number of them now, but of course there are many more levels and I, and I'm incredibly lucky not to have plunged into those kind of further depths and, and there are plenty of others who have been much less lucky and currently are much yeah, less lucky. Very much so. And I don't, I, I, I'm laughing a lot there, but it's just like the, the, the sheer absurdity of like that sort of, um, that situation. I just can't imagine as like as a person who's from like I'm from Ireland you're from the UK very very similar sort of like upbringings and kind of stabilized you know stable sort of like lives and worlds where like shit can't go too badly really you know like you know maybe personally but on a sort of a, a sort of a, a national scale we neither of us have probably ever really seen shit hit such a fan in such a way that like our brains are almost not equipped to deal with those sort of things and i guess maybe that's a protective mechanism and sort of a naivety and hippie grand sure i'm from the, i'm from the uk it's grand like you know they let me out it's all it's all it'll be good you know we'll shake some hands and you know no you're, you're completely right there and and, and i i think um uh, you know i definitely i definitely trivialize it um and you know, now i've started giving uh talks about this i i have to force myself to not trivialize what happened to me at the end of that experience mm. because I mean it's easier for me just to kind of brush over it make a joke of it play it down and and that is I suppose in some sense a, a, a coping mechanism also usually because it's the end of the talk and I'm normally bollocked on for too long <laughs> and there's less uh, there's just less sure. time you know space for it um, also I've just watched the Banshees mm -hmm. of Inishir and, and I'm now convinced that not all Irish people and not all English people had the same upbringing so who knows Maybe <laughs> you don't live on a small island off the coast. Do you? Depends on what part of the uh, of the country you're from. <laughs> I mean the uh, the whole Russia adventure that you were on recently is interesting in so many ways, and and um, as I understood it, you want you you went there to document the Yakutsk people and how they were affected by climate change, the sort of nomadic reindeer herders in that region. Um, yes yeah among other yeah, people and yeah. and that is that whole region of that huge landmass is so int intriguing and so interesting to me for so many reasons um i would love to hear a little bit more on how how and what are the effects for them in terms of climate change and how much does their way of life change now uh, due to climate change and how uh, sort of um, uh, much of the life that is being portrayed on on in YouTube videos and whatnot like the Venki people and things like that how much of it is still a part of their daily life like if that makes sense like how much of the traditions are they still carrying on versus becoming more and more uh, modernized if you will yeah well i mean that's that's more or less you know as you've as you've neatly summarized that's more or less what i was asking 
before I left and what I wanted to learn about. And I had expected it to be that their lives had changed quite a lot in the face of climate change. And certainly in about the first month I was walking, uh, the tiny handful, two or three villages I went through were uh, Sacha villages. The Sacha people, yeah. formerly known as Yakut, um, are... Um, they're the sort of the majority of people in the area. They're not reindeer herders. They're sort of horse and uh, cow herders. They, they, they're pastoralists. Um, they, the, the winters are getting more erratic, but the changes for them are coming in summer. Um, in right. summer 2021, when Evia was on fire in Greece, you know that, mm -hmm. um, that island, uh, it was quite a lot in the yeah. news. Um, at that same moment, if you added up the area of all the wildfires in Yakutia, this area I was in, this region I was in rather. Um, it's the size of Belgium. There were 6.6 .6 million hectares on fire at that moment. Yeah, I saw And of course we just weren't. Yeah, and, and we walking along this river I was on, the, the, the Yana River, there were just huge swathes of, of the, the boreal forest, the taiga, either side of the river that were just totally burned out. Um, and in, I mean, in the first village I came through, came to, I was chatting to these little old ladies in the village hall and I asked them, uh, uh, you know, this exact question. And they said, well, um, you know, we go and spread water around our village. We pump water out of the river and spread it around our village to you know, keep back. You know, they, they got lucky the last few years. They haven't had fires come you know, right up to their village, but they're prepared for that. They're expecting that to happen any year now and it will happen. Uh, just depends on on wind, I suppose. Mm -hmm. um, and they've also noticed their their houses. They all live in uh, pretty, I mean, log cabins, really. Um, and their houses, they've noticed these bulges forming around the sides of them. And uh, that's the permafrost melting. Their houses are sinking yeah. into yeah. essentially a melting swamp, a, a, a bog, you know, the size of China. Um, and uh, the, you know, th those are having an effect in in the well about 40 miles, 50, uh, 60, 70 kilometers perhaps from where I started walking. Um, there's a town called Verkhoyansk, which uh, is known as the pole of cold. It's had the coldest ever recorded temperature about 100 years ago in an inhabited place, that is, uh, of about minus 68.3 wow. or minus 67.8 degrees. I forget the exact, you know, it, really fucking cold. Um, <laughs> and in summer 2020... It recorded 39.7 degrees, I think it was, nearly 40 degrees. And I think oh, it might wild. have had over 40 this summer. So, I mean, that's that's astounding. And and the, well, okay, so that's the Sacha people in the sort of, I was going to say the south, but the south of where I was hiking. But, you know, all of them that I just spoke about, they're all inside the Arctic mm -hmm. Circle. But north of them, I went through a couple of Evenki settlements, um, as you mentioned, these reindeer herders. And this this is where I was a little surprised because I had expected, you know, reading about the Sami and the Nenets and, you know, various reindeer herders spread across the, the Arctic and subarctic north. I'd expected them to be facing a lot of problems from climate change and particularly from, um, I think they're termed uh, rain on snow events. Essentially, you get uh, erratic autumn temperatures, you get a period of warmth and rain followed immediately by cold as opposed to a sort of a slow drift into cold 
and you get water that you know rain mm-hmm. that falls and then freezes immediately so you get an ice crust forming over the ground and then reindeer you know in winter reindeer tend to bust through you know hoof their way through the snow to get to lichen once any other sort of forage is is, is gone mm-hmm. and that's hard to do when there's there's a crust of of um of ice uh, in certain years in mongolia they have die-off events where a third or even half of the country's livestock dies for exactly the same reasons oh, um, really? but, but it turns out that in mm-hmm. yakutia the winter they haven't had huge problems with that certainly less so than other uh, certainly less so than the the nenets um and and sort of various other northern peoples but what they we get that a lot here in northern sweden yeah i'm, I'm aware and, and it and it's it's I mean, that's probably the biggest problem faced by, certainly by reindeer herders, globally speaking. Um, but what I found, and perhaps unsurprisingly, was that that, that way of life, that tradition, that seems to be, um, you know, if anything, thriving in Northern Europe, in the north of Northern Europe, uh, and among the Nenets in Western Russia, kind of European Arctic Russia, um, isn't among the uh, the Evenki the people, um, the herds have just just col- collapsed in size uh, since the Soviet era, and it's because people aren't really interested to do it anymore. It's a really hard life. You know, living in in Yakutia is is hard enough already. In the villages, there's no running water, there's no indoor toilets. Going outdoors and sitting on a toilet seat, or usually they're squatters, which is a good thing, given that it could be minus sixty degrees. Um, you don't want to sit on. You don't want yeah, you don't. You don't want a few drops of pee that someone else has left on the wooden seat to uh, to you know to pull half no. your thigh off when you stand up. But um, no. you know, it's it's a really hard place to live. It's a really hard life, and the herders live an even harder life. And so the the, the very few that I spoke to, there aren't really many left, frankly. They um, they said that basically it's it's younger people not wanting to do it that is most imperiling that way of life. Uh, you know they are moving to the city they want to live in in apartments with electricity and they want to work in offices and kind of live what understandably they and we see as the good life the comfortable life you know Mm -hmm. right now all three of us are probably in buildings that have some easy form of heating them that doesn't require going out and chopping down a tree Um, maybe not Uh, i I don't know your setup jeremiah it sounds like maybe that's that's not the case (laughs) (laughs) i was gonna say jeremy has chopped down his firewood (laughs) which is pretty impressive but but no i understand what you're saying and and you're totally right i mean and and in some ways there's a reverse of it isn't there because we as western people are fascinated by these sort of the way in which some of these sort of places and people live to the point where uh we're trying to like yeah, we idealized them, but then also we're sort of like, there's, a, I guess there's a, an element of guilt there as well, even though, you know, obviously it's not us personally, but as our, our sort of our way of life kind of encroaches on these people and it's only through our ability to be able to document and sort of uh, broadcast these ways of life easily through YouTube, through podcasts, through Instagram or whatever, that we're actually seeing what they're losing and they want to, they want what we're, what we have. And I think it's a really weird interesting sort of cycle where the act of us sort of being able to share these things is also the same tools that they're using to see our world and wanting a part of it yeah i i i completely agree and i I, i'm always quite careful with this i try not to 
mourn the passing of a way of life if those who are moving away from it aren't mourning it themselves mm-hmm. you know if 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 some form of subsistence farming is becoming um you know no longer viable due to rising erratic tides bringing salt water onto crops that's one thing but mm-hmm. if certain people have decided they don't want to live <laughs> out on the sort of screaming howling windy sure. tundra wastelands sure. then you know, that's the, true. I, that's I, I true. totally get that. And, and there's there's an element of, and, you know, we're all guilty of this at times. I've certainly been guilty of this in the past. There's an element of almost subconscious condescension that comes with mm-hmm. kind of, it's essentially the sort of the noble savage trope that, you know, yep. isn't it? Isn't it a shame that X, Y, and Z no longer want to live in a small domed hut made, hut made of shit because it's right. a very <laughs> picturesque way of life. And, you know, of course, none of us want to return to that. There's, I mean, there's, True. I think um, the <laughs> the the of course satirical or parodic depiction of like medieval England in in um, the Monty Python Ho- the Holy Grail film right right gives right. an idea of what it would have been like in medieval England and it's just awful it's and crap. we don't want that understandably and you know if, if living in a living in a cabin is, is is wonderful but it's also wonderful if you can whack on a dvd occasionally no um, exactly or, exactly you know and so so i i, I think if and that's i suppose one small bit of value i think i can or hope that i can offer having taken the time and the trouble to get up to where i was earlier this year is that i spent a bit of time with people living in a way that perhaps they won't be for a great deal longer and that is just some sense of record um you know yeah. we 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 moved away from lots of uh aspects of our culture some good some very bad and as long as there's record of it then it's not lost in a sense you know the the egyptians we know all about them and we're learning more and more all the time because they wrote everything down and or chiseled everything down. Um, and that's that's fine, I think. The human story is ever-evolving and maybe it is to some extent homogenizing these days and maybe that is a bit sad. But um, generally, the movement is towards progress and I think it's it's sometimes hard to, but it's important to remember that that is or can be a good thing. Charlie, I think that's a perfect place to end this conversation because uh, that's a. I think that very nicely summarizes what what you do. Um, but before we let you go, is what's coming down the line? I'm sure you've got other adventures coming up, or something that you have planned, or something that you want to kind of nail. But what's uh, what's 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 coming in the future for us? Maybe next year for for yourself. Um, well, next year, hopefully, uh, a book about this this trip to Siberia. Right. Okay. Year, of course. Uh, which will be it will sit somewhere at the intersection of, I suppose, travel history and politics. Um, gotcha. So that'll be uh, well, I'm working on it at the moment. Um, I haven't decided what the next adventure will be. I've got a few ideas kind of kicking around, but I've, I've, I've sort of vowed that I will get a first draft at least of this book done before making a nice. decision. So hopefully sometime early in the new year, I will be able to start thinking about that or rather start um, it, further indulging current thoughts about what journey might be next. But for the time being, uh, I'm being a good boy and I'm <laughs> doing work. That sounds good. If you ever find yourself in Northern Sweden... I would uh, love to have more philosophical chats around the fire with some coffee and maybe a whiskey. <laughs> I would love that. Actually, just where, whereabouts are you? 
I am on the 66th parallel, so uh-huh. about 50 minutes, one hour northeast of a uh, coastal town called Luleå. Okay, yep. Um, so in, in, in that that neck of the woods. Somewhere up in the back of beyond, bang on the Arctic Circle. Just below <laughs> it, yeah. Amazing. Cool. Well, hey, um, good luck with the book, Charlie, and we'd love to talk to you again maybe when uh, when that comes out and we can we can pick your brain a little bit more. But um, Charlie, thank you so much for uh, coming and talking to us today. Super appreciate it. Really fascinating. I love your work. I love your books. And uh, yeah, I look forward to seeing what you guys are doing in the future. Fellas, it's been a pleasure. Thank you, Barry.